Welcome to the 2022 Conscious Leaders Podcast Highlights episode. I'm your host, founder of Conscious Leaders, Ruth Frenger. Phew, 2022, what a year. And it's been the first year for two years now that has seen less direct effect of the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, there are ongoing effects. And one of the lasting effects on business is clearly the working from home and hybrid mixes, which we see are largely positive. But there seems to be every opinion out there about the best policy from a business perspective and an employee perspective. But clearly this stuff is deeply nuanced and you'll hear some of the podcast episodes from this year discuss this. 2022 has been the year I've published a book called Next Level Leadership, Nine Lessons from Conscious Leaders. And in it, I've digested the top traits and behaviors of the podcast guests and coupled that with my own experience and global research. It's also been a year I did a TEDx talk called Tapping Into The Leadership Superpower. Much of that talk was inspired by the highs and lows of my personal journey, my training as an exec coach and my conversations on this podcast. So I feel deeply thankful to my guests for everything they've shared to get to this point and also for you as listeners from being there to learn alongside me. For the podcast, it's been a really big year of honest conversations and I was really honoured to meet and interview Sir John Timpson, CBE. We'll come to him shortly as he shares about his own experience with depression. But I wanted to start with a very special guest who I feel fortunate enough to consider a friend now. Their name is Grace Francis, previously Chief Experience Officer at Accenture Song, that was at the time of interviewing, and now their Global Chief Creative and Design Officer at Wong Doody. I asked Grace, what do you do when someone is struggling? I think it's very, very similar to sports performance. In a single moment, if you start to choke, you panic and you stop You stop being able to engage your brain. And I think the first thing to do is to be able to look at the circumstances and try to take some of that pressure off. It's not always possible, especially when we're in senior roles. I can't, I can't get rid of your targets. What I can do is, again, create a space where we can say, right, if we take the pressure off for this period of time, let's just see how we can operate again. And a lot of the time what people need is that chance to catch that breath, to, to recenter themselves and remember that actually they're very good at their jobs. Um, if there's something outside in the world, I think that requires us to be more human. I don't know anyone who hasn't suffered a bereavement um, in the last two years. I don't know anyone who hasn't suffered health problems. Um, and that, in a very strange way, one of the few things that is good, means that we are more empathetic to that situation. It's easy for us to say, I understand what you're going through. I've seen or experienced something similar myself. Such tangible advice on how to release short-term pressure to allow people to regain that confidence they have in themselves. I went on to ask Grace about their own identity as they identify as non-binary. I was born into a woman's body, but I don't feel like a woman and I don't want to be treated like a woman, including the good bits, but also the, sort of the patriarchy that comes with it, how a woman is um, treated in work and what's expected of a woman. Um, and a couple of years ago, uh, once I got a C-suite title, I decided to go to my CEO and say, I want to tell you who I am and how I am, and I want, I want my, um, my pronouns to reflect that, so I use they, them pronouns rather than she, her pronouns. And um, broadly, I got a very, very positive response um, from the person sitting immediately opposite me. How those people feel when I leave the room, I don't always know. Um, and uh, maybe I don't have the right to know that as well. And what I do know is the conduct that they treat me with at work is freeing. Um, for me, I've always spent uh, a lifetime working 
in companies where I'm the person bringing the new shiny weird thing. <laughs> and so being the person bringing the new shiny weird thing and being a bit weird um, actually kind of goes hand in hand together. So I've, I've definitely coupled those, probably unconsciously, but I've definitely coupled those things together. Um, so when I experience someone finding me at odds with their worldview, I can say, well, it's because I'm bringing in this new type of work, as opposed to it's because I exist in a way that perhaps they didn't know um, was even a thing before. And it sounds like you've got a really positive experience now, um, broadly from Accenture, but have you had any less well-received experiences in the past? Or, you know, how have people dealt with that identity in the past that, in a way that might have been, you know, good or bad? Yeah, I think what I do experience is... Um, is forms of rejection all of the time. And one of the first questions I ask is, is this rejection external? Is it coming from the other person? Or am I seeing it because I'm feeling uncomfortable? And it's a bit of both probably, I think. But what I do find is um, I don't fit in the way I used to. When I identified as a woman, I could sit in a room with women. And even though I don't have children and I haven't taken a traditional path that way, um, I'm pretty much accepted. But now it's very hard to place me. And um, I think women don't know if they can talk about how hard it is to be a woman in front of me anymore. And I don't have that camaraderie that I used to have. Uh, and so I do feel a little bit like I'm a party of one. Um, very occasionally I'll meet another trans person, but a lot of people who are transgender are moving from one binary to the other. I'm a man, I want to be a woman, I'm a woman, I want to be a man. Um, or I've always been that and I now get to have uh, my outside identity match my inside identity. Um, for me, it's more like saying none of the boxes are applicable. Mm. Yeah, I'm not taking any, any box. Exactly, yes, mm. yes. None of the above. And I think for, for leaders, and I don't want to sort of excuse um, leaders in any way, but for leaders in organisations who've been listening to this podcast, there's quite a lot going on in society. There's a lot to be aware of. And and I wondered if, if what kind of advice or guidance would you give someone if, if they've got someone who is trans or non-binary in their organisation or they're becoming aware of that, or maybe there's just rumours they're hearing about and they haven't had that, you know, direct conversation. What would you encourage from their behaviour? So I would say it's about putting policy and evidence in place that trans people, um, non-binary people, um, even people uh, who are gay, are protected without calling out individuals. So showing, even if you feel you have no people who are trans or non-binary in your business, this is how we welcome and include those people. Accenture have amazing policies that see not just uh, the person who's transitioning supported, but their entire workforce, everybody around them, their manager and everyone around them, gets training to make sure they understand and feel comfortable themselves. That's pretty radical. But I think one of the important things we recognise, and we see a lot in universities actually, is even if we suspect someone may have a trans identity, they might not be comfortable being out in that context. They might be out at home, but not at work, at university, but not at home. And so we need to make sure that we're not pushing people uh, to share something they're not ready to share. Mm. So it's more about an environment of inclusivity in a, a tone, it sounds like. Yeah, and often I think we can we can project that in different ways. And if you are minoritized or marginalized, if you feel othered in any way, I you can look for evidence of different groups, even if they're different. I have gone into workplaces and seen a practicing Muslim being treated well and thought, okay, there's a chance I will also be treated well here. Mm. And that really, really helps. Uh, I have a friend who um, told me an anecdote the other day that um, they, they are transgender, they were sitting in a cafe, and uh, someone came in for an interview, a barista came in for an interview, and the week later the barista said, 
I'm gay and I took this job here because I saw you were treated well. Mm. And that's lovely, right? That's a wonderful story. What an affirmation. And that's what we need to do. Um, if we can live... Uh, if we can live in these practices and we can treat each of us well at each times, it creates an environment where still a leap of faith, there's still a jump, but you can take that jump. And to extend that conversation, I think it's important that I share the snippet of where I asked Grace where their leadership is going in terms of inclusion. I think the next step is recognising um, this is beyond identity, this has to be about individuals and how individuals can fit in. And we've seen over the last two years we've worked from home and in many ways um, I don't think we're going to return to the office and I think we need to fight for that. I think in the Second World War women went into the workforce and they wore trousers and when the war ended those things couldn't be taken away from them and we need to hold on to the freedom of uh, not being chained to a nine to five a Monday to Friday. I see people bathing their babies, I see people having a nap because they've got a fatigue condition. Um, I see people who are physically disabled having the freedom to join meetings um, where they couldn't, literally couldn't access a building. And uh, you know, this is this is in all sorts of industries and all sorts of roles. And for me, what I want to see is people participating and having a space at the table because of the potential that they have and uh, not being blocked out because of um, neurodiversity, physical disability, um, access and ability to be part of it. Uh, All I want is um, a few hours to use your brain and use my brain together and see what we come up with. Everything else, everything else um, is up for grabs and can be negotiated as we need. Hmm. And and how do you think you'd like to, and this is maybe a slight leap, but how do you think you'd like to push your own behaviour to do that and influence those around you? Because it seems like you know, you've got this very progressive outlook and and you have a power to influence here. So, so what's key in making that culture move, continue to move? Yeah. So I think within work, it's radical inclusivity. Um, I, I have worked with a person who's now a very deep friend of mine, who is a white man who went to Eton. And when I learned to give him empathy, he had capacity to give me empathy. So I think radical inclusivity actually looks like saying, well, how do we also acknowledge in work the people of the most privileged position? And the fact that the the nature of life is, you know, it can be long and fantastic, but it can also be hard. Um, And it can be that you can have all of the privilege within society and still be sweating blood at work. And that's not okay. So I think for me, the next jump is within the work environment to uh, to offer the compassion I show to minoritized and marginalized people to people of great privilege as well. And I do, I think I can do it some of the time, but I think that's, a, that's very much at odds with recognizing in the wider world um, that I don't think that can be the case at all. I think we have to really disrupt the white patriarchy. Um, but within the systems of work, I think if everybody, you know, there's a universal need to be understood how can I ask someone of power and privilege to understand me if he doesn't feel understood himself? And that's the only way. So I have to come to you and say, tell me what's going on with you and get that trust. And only then can I say, do you know what it's like for a member of your staff who's black? She wants to tell you. Or do you know what it's like for a member of your staff who's gay or trans or disabled? They would like to tell you now. Um, and that's, that's the next big jump. Mm. And that's also important because, I mean, even things like climate change, is, 
it's very tempting to other people and go, well, they don't care or they don't get it or they're not doing enough. But if we're not listening, then how do we have a, a starting point? Yeah, and this is absolutely it. And it's about removing the idea of conflict. Nobody, I think, I think nobody wants to be told they're doing something wrong. I think that's a very universal statement. And it, I think it's very, very hard. And I think we see it a lot of, a lot of the time with, um, again, with, with white men who feel that they may have been passed up. Maybe they were in a working class background. Maybe they've worked very hard for that position. Maybe they weren't. Maybe they feel this is their destiny. Um, but they can feel nudged out as well. Now, I'm not saying that feeling is um, equal to someone who's minoritized. But if we ignore that feeling and trample over it, we're never going to get them to listen to us. I think Grace's words provide a wake-up call for all of us to consider who we are othering, who we're pushing out of conversations by saying that they're in the wrong, by saying that they're the bad guy. Really important that we take this time for self-reflection. Let's move on now to Lee Timbrell. He is GM of Manufacturing and Distribution at Specsavers. He talks about how they changed employee satisfaction drastically and how they acted to enable that change. When the results came through, that site, our site at the time, scored the lowest level of engagement. Hmm. This is when you came in yeah. originally, yeah. Just a couple of months, well, I hadn't started when the survey was completed. Hmm. I was there when the results came through. And it scored, it was about seven out of 10. So it wasn't a disaster by any stretch. But when compared to some of the other sites around the UK uh, and Europe, it was, it was the lowest. And it was devastating for the people involved. It was devastating for the GM, the HR manager, the senior team. And I was like, this isn't, this is an absolute opportunity. You know, they, they, I, 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 I'd spent the last sort of four, six weeks understanding the business, getting to know it, huge amount of change going on. So a huge investment and, and, and we can get caught up sometimes and, and think we're doing the right things by investing massively into businesses and new bits of kit coming in, new machines, new equipment, new, new processes and driving efficiency that way. But if we don't take the people on the journey with us, we're not, we're not engaging, we're mm. not... It wasn't the technology is the easy bit. Technology is absolutely <laughs> the easy the bit. Stuff. So, mm. you know, I, I said, that's where we start. So myself, the senior team, the, the GM worked uh, work together and really, we, we, we looked at all of the feedback and it you know it was it was just thousands of comments uh, and we sort of categorized them into five different themes and those five themes I've worked with for the last seven and a half years and developed them and they've absolutely become my passion mm. and that is you know the, the true style of leadership mm -hmm. is the first real open communication is the second constant development not only just processes but people mm. is the third real collaborative teamwork is the fourth and the fifth one is really easy it's respect it's trust and respect mm. so we we went through if you like the, the fall on your sword type meetings in mass with with shifts with departments and you know it's a, if you've ever heard of the sort of harbinger principles of you know harbinger is 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 self-reflection we in in specsavers at the time our venture was being deployed and it teaches you to look at how you can be the problem not mm. necessarily somebody else or some other department or whatever else have a look at yourself first inwardly and it was a classic example of how we could 
blend that harbinger with the feedback from the inside survey and say, let's, you know, let's understand how we can be better for our colleagues, how we can be a better leadership team. And we had those, those sort of um, town hall meetings and we kicked it all off and we showed them the five themes and we said we, against each theme was, a, was an action plan. And we said our commitment to you guys is that we will be back every three months and hold these exact same sessions with 20 to 30 people. Mm. And so these are feedback sessions? Feedback that, sessions yeah. of, for, for a, a site employing close to 250 people at the time. Mm. And how do you do you run that sort of thing? Because you've said quite openly that like, you know, you've kind of fallen on your sword, really happy for people to give direct open feedback or tell me what's going wrong. How it how do you a, run that so it's not like chaos? It was exhausting. I bet, it, yeah. It was exhausting. And at the time, in fairness to the, the GM uh, did the initial uh, discussion, you know, he and I were stood at the at the front of the uh, of the of the comms room, but it was quite literally opened it up with we haven't been good enough we understand we haven't been good enough for you but this is what we intend to do to be better if you allow us and work with us mm. so it was you know that that fall on your sword moment and mm. it, with with that with it like that arbinger type principle no defensiveness mm. try not to be defensive and, and acknowledge our shortfalls I really like the principle of not being defensive and open. It's really easy in business to want to move on from challenges and quickly brush them under the carpet. But if we do this too quickly, we cause friction in our businesses because people feel like they're not being acknowledged or listened to. Moving on now to Sir John Timpson, CBE. He was an incredibly lovely man to meet. And I asked him about what's been tough on his huge journey in business. And he shared about his own personal mental health challenges. But I first asked him about the power of trust in the many ex-convicts that they hire. Just about the first job we asked them to do is take the money to the bank. Or something similar to say, we trust you. Yeah. yeah. No, it's not going to go wrong. Very, I mean, you can't believe it. It just won't go wrong. But the very fact that you're saying, we trust you to do that, is the opposite of how the other rest of the world works. We treat so, them, yeah. yeah. You've been through this huge journey of, of growing this business and no doubt you've had loads of extreme highs of um, as you've expanded, as you've created so much influence in the business to help people adopt this style and help others grow and, and no doubt thrive for it for themselves through supporting others. What? Tell me what's tough, what's hard. I mean, the toughest time I had was in the uh, 1980s when I just brought back the management buyer bought back what the family business has gone totally out of the family's hands. And just imagine I've had an enormous piece of luck in doing it, and because the, the deal just went in our favour, and we were able to get 80, well, over 75% for the management, and I got over 50% for myself. And so, it, I mean, the, the fact that We'd lost it in a boardroom round, which made me even more determined to do it. And then, so that made it even worse when I suddenly realised that this thing's not going to make money. And I'm suddenly, you know, I'm going to be, one, be a failure, an absolute public failure. And that's the first time I really, really felt quite depressed. So, so I got to know what that was like, you know, the, the time when you get up in the morning and 
Yeah, oh, I've got another day feeling miserable or uh, nervous, looking at other people and thinking, you don't realise how lucky you are. I mean, I wish I could go around doing, doing your way. But, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, it takes a long time to realise that uh, I'm me. And there are certain things I, I, I operate in the way I do because of the personality I am. And I can't be like someone else. And that's quite tough to uh, to exercise. Because everyone thinks, oh God, look at this wonderful business. You must be able to do all that. I mean, but for a start, I can't I can't cut keys with my shoes. <laughs> I started off as a shoe shop assistant, and yeah. uh, and then I was a shoe buyer, so I understood fashion. And, uh, but and and I wouldn't be the greatest person in helping someone with their personal life, not always. Although sometimes I might be the right one. People come to chat to me and they seem to, seem to think it helps, but uh, mm. not nothing like as good as those area managers we've got. Mm. So, it sounds like you've instilled, mm. you know, that, that type of role that they run. So it also sounds like you've, you're familiar with the territory of depression, something I'm also familiar with. Yeah. Um, well, I've written about it. Yeah, I was talked about it. I'm very clear that... What do you it, say about it? Well, I, I, I just describe what it's like. Uh, because if I describe, you know, just just mention it, didn't I? About sort of, you get up in the morning and you sort of still feel, and then how do you feel on a scale of one to ten, like about two, and uh, you you can't stop thinking about things which actually are very important. You can't get them out of your mind. They go round and round and round, and and you you, you just just can't operate. Uh, and when I talk in those terms, I say, well, that, that's what I'm like. So they could they come talk to me. And I described that in a little book that we did for Mental Health at Work, which is free for all our shops. Uh, I've done another one on teenage mental health as well. Uh, because in the end, the most important message, and I have to each time remind myself of this, go and talk to someone about it. Because you never, you think, you think you're the only person in the world who has this problem. Certainly, when I had it, that I mean, the very first time I was actually in the mid seventies, late seventies. Never, never occurred to me that anything like that would happen, to, happen to anybody, and then it happens to me. So I must be the first one, and you can't. And, and there was probably, yeah, well, there was a stigma then, and, and uh, my late wife Alex persuaded me to go and see the doctor and that made the difference and, mm. uh, he was he was fantastic and I thought I thought he was a very tough hard guy because you know you're terrified about going to it with a cold or whatever <laughs> and uh, but no when it came to explaining and he explained why you're like that basically you've you've, you've overburdened your your body and your mind you just and it's people who get it tend to be the high performers people who are actually relied on to do more than they're capable of doing and so it, you just burn out and that's the body's way of saying enough is enough mm. and, uh, the body gives you these messages yeah so uh, so the fact I, I think it's important that those those that do experience it say that's what it's like and also you can't you can't beat it on your own Wow, profound words from John there, and I completely agree. Having experienced depression myself, I find I'd often need to be with people 
even though I didn't always necessarily want to talk about it. I think it's really important to talk about it, but it's also important to have the warm, non-judgmental company of others. The next highlight I'd like to share is with disabled CEO and founder of Purple Goat, Martin Sibley. I really love this man and we had a wonderful conversation in Cambridge. I've had this hero's journey, but there's a sort of thing around, we're going really off left field now, but mature masculinity. And that's about almost giving others a platform and and facilitating rather than being the centre of it. Mm. So again, it's a shift that I'm going through at the moment. Okay, this is a very interesting topic. Tell me more about mature (laughs) masculinity. Yeah, so... Oh my God, it's like, because it encompasses so many different parts. Because even from my disability perspective, I rely on care support for so much. So I sometimes don't feel fully empowered in the most basic physical things. So like, there's a thing around, like I'm not six foot, six pack buff man. So like, there's that whole masculinity thing I've pondered for a while in that way. But then obviously the way I met, brought it up a minute ago is more in the business sense or the career sense. And yeah, it, it is just that sense of you, the hero's journey in the film, the hero comes out at the end of the film, blood all over their face, and they've slayed the dragon and they've achieved everything. And I feel like all the goals I had, I've achieved. And I was like, do I need to then achieve new ones? To aim for new ones and achieve them? Which I think eventually there will be a bit of that. But I think the nature of those goals are going to be different. And so, yeah, just to kind of say what I said before, it feels like it's more about that, that facilitation and that, I almost want to say the godfather, like it's this sort of, which is a bit of a left field mafia metaphor. We're not doing any of that a purple goat. But yeah, it, it becomes more around bringing others into the fold that previously weren't. So it's lifting others up, giving yeah. them a platform. Thank you for putting it better than I was struggling yeah. to, but yeah. No, it's, it's really good stuff. And I mean, masculinity as a whole subject is, and that is a whole another podcast as yeah. well. But it is, it is really interesting to think about how by leading, we can step back. Yeah. And, and I've, again, partly because of the care, the need for care and the disability stuff, I had to develop bigger emotional intelligence to just survive, like just to live. And I know that that's one of my superpowers at work, but I also know that what you might call a more masculine trait of like being a bit more decisive and straight to the point, I sometimes struggle with. So I, yeah, like you're right, it's a whole other bigger, bigger conversation, but my observations is that the world became too much masculine energy but that doesn't need to be a negative to men or a threat to men. Men and women have masculine and feminine energy, but we just got out of balance with too much of the doing and achieving and thriving. And so another part of my well-being exploration is sometimes it's fine to sit in the garden and do nothing, but I've not done that for all of my working life because I'm always like, what needs doing now? What? should I be doing to achieve more? So yeah, the sort of learning that you, and yet in a weird way, I have better ideas and more impact off the back of that stillness and that relaxation. So I've definitely been getting more into like meditation and mindfulness. It's interesting, isn't it? How the still moments, those of non-doing actually can result in the best work and the best creative ideas. 
When we remove the pressure, we allow our thinking to happen. Moving from stillness to joy, I spoke to president of Wong Duty, Skylar Matson, and I asked her about her approach to leadership. I feel like I'm in a place of privilege as a leader because I still have the ability to handpick a little project that I don't need to be involved in, but is really creative and excites me. And I can kind of pop into it without disrupting, but get energized from that project. And so I think it was during the pandemic, there were so many difficult conversations and low energy across my team and myself that I I would seek out these projects and I would just have some time to do things that brought me joy. And a project that I would spend five hours a week on where I was receiving all of this joy would be enough to sustain the other things I had to do that were difficult. And so I started in my one-on-ones, starting with what's bringing you joy right now? Because when you approach a one-on-one, of course, I want to give my team space to vent and to bring me challenges. Sometimes you can lean so heavily into that, that every session you have is focused on negativity. But when I start it with what's bringing you joy right now, sometimes it's nothing. And that's important for me to know because then I can seek out things that I know are gonna motivate them and help them find room on their plate for those things. But reminding people that there are things that bring them joy, creating space so they can add those if they don't have any um, is wonderful for me as a leader. And it totally changes somebody's mood when you frame up a conversation like that. What I thought leadership was, was solving people's problems before I really was in it. And so when you come to a conversation, you want people to bring you problems because you want to solve them because that's your job. But that doesn't create an environment for your team to thrive, to solve their own problems. And um, that gets pretty draining as well. So the whole, the whole frame up, it started with me wanting my own joy and now leaning into that with my team has made me a different type of leader because that's what we're talking about more than what problems do you have and can I solve them for you? I feel like Skylar's comments highlight a really important lesson for all leaders to realize just how powerful it is to get others to solve their own problems. And she does it from a place of joy, which I love as an idea because it brings a lot more energy than when we overfocus on problems. We're not ignoring the problems, but we're thinking how we might structure a conversation so we talk about the good things first because that energy enables better thinking for when we might talk around the problems. This is actually a researched approach called appreciative inquiry if you want to look it up and I'll also drop something about it in the show notes. I thought I'd wrap up with a snippet from the podcast where I invited my own coach Fee to interview me. She asked me exactly how you know the next level leadership is showing up in your organization. It's about a power shift. So I think traditional leadership holds the power around the leaders at the top. Whereas because next level leaders are confident in themselves, they don't need to hold the power anymore. They can give it away because they don't need to prove themselves. So they push the power responsibility out to others. It doesn't mean they they give away all responsibility. They still have a vision. They're still very clear about expectations. They still have boundaries around the autonomy that they offer to people. 
but they offer that power to others and let them fly. So they facilitate people to make decisions, to take action, to to be responsible themselves, and then other people are driving the business for you. So long term, this is actually a much easier way of working than it is to hold all the power yourself. I'm Ruth Frenger, and you've been listening to the 2022 Highlights episode. I hope these nuggets have either been a good reminder of some of our guests, or perhaps even a good intro to the people on this podcast that I'm so keen to showcase. I hope you come back again, and I would always welcome your rating or review of the podcast. That's really supportive if you're able to do that. Or if you'd like to send me any feedback privately, my email is ruth at consciousleaders.org.uk. And you can find out more about our work at consciousleaders.org.uk and subscribe for free content to help you as a leader do your best work. Good luck for 2023 and perhaps we'll see you soon.